0: y'all that intro music is like so epic i feel like anything i do on the other side of it it's gonna be like so dull (laughs) but good morning friends i've got a question for you as we get started today have you ever had a mess like this yeah, it's pretty rough, right? Uh, maybe it wasn't Christmas lights. Maybe it was a string. Maybe it was a cord. Maybe it was a shoestring. But knotted up messes, they happen for all of us, right? Um, I, I know that sometimes they happen by accident. Other times they might happen with a little help from us. Right. But I have, um, I have a tendency whenever this happens in my life, particularly in my necklaces, this is kind of how it goes. I pull out a necklace and I like get a glimpse that a knot is in it. And this is exactly how I handle this. Okay. I get a glimpse of it and I'm like, Oh my goodness. And I just like go and I throw it back in my jewelry box and I try to pretend like I never even saw it. I feel overwhelmed by this little knot because I have no idea where to start. And so I kind of have this magical thinking that if I just leave it in the box and go on with my life, that it will just kind of resolve itself all on its own by the next time I go back to retrieve it. But guess what? That doesn't really work, does it? Normally, actually, when I go back to get my necklace, not only is the knot still there, but it's actually kind of gotten worse because of the way I threw it back in there. It's just gotten even messier and bigger and harder to deal with. Please tell me I'm not all by myself. Is there anybody else that does this? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Now, my little boys, they have a totally different approach to knots. Whenever they get in a knot and something, they come yelling and screaming to me, "Mommy!" and they're usually like yanking the knot as hard as they can, which that doesn't really work well either, does it? It just intensifies the knot. It makes it even more difficult to get out. But you know what? There is like something that releases in us like when we're pulling on it, right? So if you ever do that, I get it. I understand. All right. So neither my approach nor my boy's approach to getting out knots is effective, So the only hope for us getting out any knot in our household is to wait until my mother comes for a visit because my mom is like the knot whisperer. Is anybody else here a knot whisperer? Oh, my goodness. Oh, great. I'm so glad. We learned that Brian is, too. Brian worked in a jewelry shop, and, like, he's got all the tricks, just in case you know. But, like, what's your secret? How do you deal with it? Patience. Yeah. 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 See, like, y'all, when my mom comes in and I hand her the necklace that I still don't want to look at, guess what she does? She looks at the knot. It's revolutionary, I know. But she starts to look at it, and she starts to study it very patiently. And, and then sometimes um, she will get out, like, little tools to help her. She'll get out, like, tweezers or uh, a needle or something like that. And instead of, like, trying to get it all out in one big yank, what she does is she looks for just, like, that one little place to start. And then, you know, she'll carefully pull that out and take that one little step towards unraveling it. And then she'll do that again and again. It is a long, slow process. But every little step is a step toward healing the messiness. Well, um, I think if we all get honest, like sometimes um, our lives can look like the mess that these lights are, right? None of us really get to escape that Um, In this world, there is brokenness, unfortunately, as it currently exists. I think God is leading us toward a day where all things will be set right, where all the messy knots will be taken away, but we're not there yet. And so in the midst of this place where we currently are, we are going to face some knotted up messes. And it's not like one of those things that like if we're just like faithful enough, if we just try hard enough, then we will be able to somehow avoid it. Not even the great King David that we've been talking about has, had been able to avoid knotted up messes in his life. The one that had been called the man after David's own heart. And so the question isn't really like, will we get knotted up messes in our lives? We're going to, okay? But the question is, how are we going to deal with the knots when they arise? As we continue in David's story today, um, we come to a, a section of the scripture where it's more of a cautionary tale. A lot of times we come to the Bible and we're like, tell me the right answer, right? Tell me what it looks like to be faithful. That is not what we find here. We find the opposite. As we read through Second Samuel chapter 13 through 18, uh, what we, we get to see in painful detail is what happens when we don't deal with our messes in healthy ways. I'm going to warn you all, it's a rough and sometimes gruesome story, uh, one that I think that will leave many of us feeling like, "I guess my life could always get worse." Um, in that weird, twisted way, it might kind of be comforting to us. Research talks about that being a thing. You know, some of us watch TV shows that are happy and, like, look back on on the better days, like Andy Griffiths. Some of us watch um, shows, like, over and over and over again, like all of Seinfeld or all of uh, The Office, because it's kind of funny and we know what to expect, right? That's why we watch them over and over again. But then there are some of us who instead listen to a true kind podcast and that watch dateline all the time and that has seen every episode of every branch of law and order at least twice is anybody else do these things yeah 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 uh, why do we do this right well research says that part of it is probably because we look at that and, and we say to ourselves well at least i'm better off than this guy or gal It's this comfort. And so all that to say, if you are in need of that kind of comfort today, you are in luck. I can deliver because this is some really messy stuff. Um, I'd encourage you this week to go back home and to read through chapter 13 through 18 kind of in one sitting so that you can really absorb the whole backstory. But what I'm going to do today is take us through the high points of the story, which are actually some very low points in King David's life. You see, a knot had already begun to form whenever David, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, had abused his power and taken a woman who was not his wife named Bathsheba and then gotten her pregnant. And uh, whenever he uh, couldn't cover that up in his first attempt, he decides like, you know what, I'm just going to send her husband to the front lines of battle so that he can be killed. It was a messy situation now, as we saw last week, there had definitely been this reconciliation between God and David in chapter twelve. Um, but what 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 we talked about is how that there would be these consequences, these ripples that had already been set into motion that were still going to play out in his life um what we also don't get to see is like how he handled this in his family. Like, did they talk about this situation? Did they just try to sweep it under the rug? But what we see as we get into chapter 13 is that it is definitely having an impact on his family. We watch as his oldest son, the heir to the throne, um, the, um, the one who will be the next king of Israel, Amnon, as as David's son Amnon repeats his father's poor behavior, this time he uses force to take his own half-sister named Tamar. And Tamar, um, she's unmarried, and she knows that if this happens, it's going to ruin her life. She begs with him not to do this um, because she knows that in this day and age, it will be she, not he, who is disgraced by this. However Amnon will hear none of it. He he goes ahead with this elaborate plan that he has worked out to to force his sister into the situation and on the other side of it her life is indeed described as desolate. David, both of their fathers, he finds out about this. And rightly so, he is furious. He is upset that, that this not has, has gotten even messier in his family. But guess what he does about it? Nothing. He doesn't say or do a thing. You know, maybe he hopes it's just going to resolve itself. Maybe, um, he, he kind of, reasons through in his brain, like it's not all right for me to punish someone else who has done the same thing that I have. Or maybe, you know, he tells himself that if he just like gets the situation out of sight and out of mind, if he just stuffs it down as far as he can, that everybody will just eventually get over it because he loves genuinely all of his children, even Amnon. However, that is of course not what happens. Tamar, she has a brother named Absalom. And when Absalom hears about what Amnon has done, he is more than furious. And his anger is only fueled more as he becomes disappointed with his father in this situation. His father, he again doesn't do anything to, to set things right. His father unknowingly but still assisted in creating this situation in which his sister was taken advantage of. And then it should have been David who took Tamar in and cared for her after this happened, but he doesn't. And Absalom himself takes his sister in and he cares for her. At first, it seems like Absalom is going to deal with this situation in just the same way as his father. It seems like he's doing nothing. But really, he is just seething beneath the surface. He is just waiting for the right moment. In fact, two whole years he waits Until he finally invites all of his brothers to come out and enjoy a feast. Um, There's 19 um, sons of David that we know of that are named in scripture. So all 19 of them are sitting around the table. And somewhere in between the appetizers and dessert, what what Absalom does is he gives the order for his men to kill Amnon. He pulls the cords tighter. Now, if the story ended right there, it would be bad enough, right? It would be tragic, traumatic. There is hurt all over the place. But you guys, this is just the start of it. In that moment, Absalom has actually become the oldest of the brothers. Now he is the heir, the one who will um, come after his father and be on the throne. But he can't go back to the kingdom because if he does, he should be put to death for what he's done. And so he runs off and he goes into hiding. Three years, he is there. And David, he's heartbroken, devastated about the death of his oldest son, Amnon. And he mourns him. And then eventually, he, he kind of works through that process. And he starts to mourn his other son, Absalom, who he lost in this different way as he's in hiding. He begins to long for him to come home. But what would his people think about this, right? And so guess what action he takes? Again, he does nothing to set right the death of his first son, and he does nothing to bring his other son home. That is, until one of David's closest advisors named Joab, who I think was actually David's nephew, the family ties get really messy, um, he gets involved and he comes up with this plan to help Absalom come back home. And uh, whenever he comes back home, like, it's great. He can come back into Jerusalem, the holy city. But there is this one catch when he comes back. He is not allowed to see his father's face. Imagine how that felt, being back, but not really, for like two years He's there in Jerusalem and never gets to lay eyes on his dad until eventually he decides, you know what? It would have been better if I would have just stayed in exile. And true to form, he is ready to just yank the cords once more. The man literally sets a field on fire to get the attention of Joab, the one who'd helped him come back in the first place. And Joab does what he does. He goes to David and they work out a plan for Absalom to come and to see his father. It should be this tender moment, right? Where reconciliation is perhaps taking place between them. But in this moment, David, he kisses his son Absalom. He expresses the love that he's always had for him. But Absalom, he does not return that love for his father. Remember how Absalom isn't afraid to play the long game, right? To wait until just the right moment. Um, How he lets his anger and his bitterness just kind of drive him. And so now getting back into his father's good graces, guess what? He's ready to pull the knot even tighter, at this point in the story of the Bible, it goes on and and if you've been along this journey with us about King David, then you know like they they take some time to talk about these guys' outward appearance, right? And so we've got to do that for Absalom. Absalom is the most handsome man in all the land, it says. There's not a blemish on him. And then added to that is he has this like long, flowy hair that I always picture for whatever reason just like blowing in the wind. It talks about how uh he only cut it once a year and it weighed so much Um, and, and then once that's established once we understand he's a really good looking guy it goes on and it tells us his plan listen to his plan in the course of time Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before him, before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they received justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. I think it's pretty safe to say that subtlety was not one of the strengths of Absalom, right? I mean, here is this guy who gets a flashy chariot and has this big unnecessary entourage that's always going out before him. He's going to make sure that everyone knows that he's there. He gets up extra early in the morning so he can go and post himself in the precise position so that he can, can uh, sow the seeds of doubt in the minds of all the people coming to see his dad, all the people of Israel. He allows the people, those people to bow down and he kisses them as if he is already king. Absalom's plan to undermine and overthrow his father is in full swing. However, all the while, David seems to be kind of oblivious to this. He's just letting it happen. He seems to be ignoring that there is a problem at all. But how is that working for David? He isn't seeming to notice that things are just getting worse and worse and worse. The knot is getting bigger and it's getting messier all the time. Yet he is not going to confront his son. He's not going to set boundaries. He's not going to hold him accountable if he's even somehow not aware of what's happening. And so when his son comes to tell him with this ridiculous story, Like, hey, dad, I need to go and offer a sacrifice to God because I made him a promise this long time ago that if I ever got to come back to Jerusalem, I would go and worship him on this mountain. And yeah, I know that it's been like six years, six whole years since I've been back, but now it's the time. It's time for me to go and to worship God on this mountain. And guess what David says? Go ahead. Oh, did I mention that the mountain is also the place where King David had first been been proclaimed king again? No subtlety on Absalom's part, but David, he's still sitting here and he's thinking that maybe if he's kind enough, maybe if he's patient enough, maybe if he's loving enough that this knot will just take care of itself. However, what really happens is that Absalom does go to that place, but he takes 200 men along with him. And then you remember all those people he was picking off at the gate, planting those doubts in their minds about his father. He starts rounding all of those people up until he has an army amassed. And until finally a messenger has to come and tell David, the hearts of the people are Israel, of Israel are with Absalom. And David's response true to form, is not to to seek out his son. His response is not to go and try to reason with him. It's not to try to engage the situation at all, but his response is to flee Jerusalem as his own son is marching in with his people and as Absalom takes his seat on his father's throne. If that weren't enough, in order to show the kingdom that he was now in charge, Absalom publicly there's kids here, but let's just say it involved his concubi- his father's concubines. And so he like pulls the knot as tight as he can. Listen, I haven't seen this show, but it's my understanding there's a show out there in the world right now called Succession. And it's about like the the conflict within a family, a father and his children as they're trying to see who's going to take over their business empire, right? But I cannot imagine the show that just got... All these nominations uh, to be any more shocking, to be any more vile, to be any more daring, any more ruthless than this section of scripture. Absalom, he is—he is um, seeking guidance. Like now, he's on the throne. He's the guy. He's the king, and now he needs to know what he needs to do next. And so he—he is so blinded by his ambition that that he doesn't notice when one of his dad's old friends starts feeding him bad information. He gives them a plan that that he's already tipped David off to. And so now David is backed in a corner. There is nothing he can do but let his men go out and fight his son and his son's army. Although guess who doesn't go into battle? David stays behind. And as they fight each other, uh, as they go out to fight each other, David makes all his men promise that if they find Absalom, that they will be gentle with him, that they will not harm him. He still has this great love for the son after all these things that he has done. 20,000 men died that day as David's men routed the army of Absalom. And then Absalom himself, do you remember that long, flowy hair we talked about? That long, flowy hair, it got caught in a tree when he was riding a mule. And um, even though David had made it clear, he didn't want anyone to harm him. Y'all remember Joab, the one that had helped him out all those times? Joab comes along and he knows as long as Absalom lives, that David will be in danger And so Joab kills Absalom. When David hears the news, he weeps for his son. And the Bible says that that he, he proclaims to God that he wishes that he were the one that was dead. What a mess. What a sad, devastating, terrible, heartbreaking story. There is nothing good about this, right? Nothing good. But one has to wonder if at any point, if either of these men would have, have paused long enough to acknowledge this messy knot that was happening. What would have happened if either one of these men would have, have acknowledged the mess and then considered, like, just like what is one, one faithful step that we could take toward like untangling this? Instead of just making it worse by by ignoring it or trying to just use force to fix it, messy knots there are going to happen in our lives. That is inevitable, even when we do our very best to avoid it. And so, what about us? How are we going to respond to them? I'll be honest, you guys, I am um, the classic, like, hey, let's just pretend like the mess isn't there, kind of like I am with my jewelry, right? Let's just pretend like the the knot's not getting bigger and uglier and more messy. I'm the charge forward kind of person that thinks like, maybe if I am just faithful enough, if I just work hard enough, if I'm nice enough, if I'm patient enough, then things will just resolve themselves. But guess what? (laughs) Whether we want to acknowledge that it's there or not, the knot is in existence, and it is affecting us. And not only is it affecting us, it's getting messier over time. And at some point, um, usually at a time that is most inconvenient, there, there will be this point in which we can no longer ignore it. I can tell you that from experience, and so can David, as he was taking off fleeing from his own son as he stole power. Maybe you tend to do the opposite. Maybe you've been trying to just yank the knot out over and over again. Perhaps you've let the hurt and the bitterness and the anger kind of drive you to force things to be better. And maybe you've been trying to, to fix the other people involved and you've been trying to control and to manipulate the situation. But how's that working? <laughs> it has to be exhausting. It sure didn't go well for Absalom. The truth is we we tend to do a little bit of both of these things in our lives uh, when we respond to our nots. But there is a different response I want to encourage us to live into today. I would encourage us to invite God into the messy knot. Here's the secret. He's already there. He already knows that it exists. But our shame a lot of times makes us want to try to like hide it away, right? Kind of like um, the junk drawer that all of us have in our homes, right? That we hope no one accidentally pulls out or that closet that if you were to open it, there'd be like an avalanche, Mm -hmm. right? Like, the secret is like we all have them, but shame tells us we're all alone. But the truth is, again, uh, we, we, we all have these messes that we want to try to like keep God out of, but he's already there and he wants to partner with us. He wants to be with us in the mess. And so what would it look like for us to invite God into the mess and allow him to, to help us see that that one place where we could start, to not try to, like, take care of the whole mess and be overwhelmed by it, but to find that that one step that we can take in faithfulness and then allow him to help us do that again and again and again. Maybe one faithful step today looks like Acknowledging that there is a not at all. That can be harder than it sounds. Maybe one faithful step today looks like sitting down and sharing the, the truth about your not with a very trusted person or with a counselor. Maybe it looks like you have having a conversation that you haven't been willing to have or you extending grace that you've been withholding to someone. Maybe one faithful step looks like setting a boundary or, or showing yourself compassion. Allowing yourself to, to just rest knowing that, that you are human and you're not always going to get it right. But the goal is, is not to, again, untangle the whole mess at once. But the goal is to allow God to help us take step after step after step in faithfulness so I want to give you the chance um, to invite God into your knot, your messy knot today. I'm going to ask the band to come back and play for us. And as they play, um, I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes. And I'm going to open us in prayer. And then I'm going to leave some space for you to have your own conversation with God. And so let's pray together. Lord God, you fully and completely, totally love us. Knotted up messes and all. Our shame tells us that it should disqualify us that we have a mess. Our shame tells us that it's just too bad that we'd be the one exception that you would turn your back on. Our shame tells us that we're just too far gone. But God, you are the God of truth. You are the God of light. And so God, may you overwhelm us today with the truth that there is no place that you are willing to go with us, that there is no ugliness that is too much, that there is no point at which you say, I'm done. Overwhelm us with the sense that, that even before we invite you, that you are present with us, whatever this life throws at us. Knowing that, God, we invite you into the knots of our lives today. Would you take just a moment and um, just acknowledge in God's presence what those knots are? There's power in us being willing to name them. Tell God just a little bit about how those knots make you feel. Tell him how you've been trying to deal with it. And now know that you're not alone, that God is right there in the midst of the messiness. Allow God to move in your heart today. Is there a step that God is encouraging you to take? Not to undo the whole thing. Just one step toward untangling the mess. Hear the words of Psalm 88 again, and then we'll we'll sing the response. But this time as you listen, again, reflect on that step who is it that God is calling you to be or what is he calling you to do today? Lord, you are the God who saves me day and night. I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, but whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves.